Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. This week, I have a couple of related questions from two different members of the congregation here at All Saints, two different uh, people inquired uh, in the last month or so. Uh, One person asked about spiritual warfare, and the other asked about the so-called binding of Satan. And so I thought it'd be a good idea to roll these two together and talk about that one whom my friend and fellow pastor here at All Saints, Pastor Neil, calls our ancient foe. Just to look at these two questions, just so that I can make sure I'm getting it right and picking up everything that is being asked here. Uh, One member said, I was thinking it might be interesting to have a podcast on the idea of spiritual warfare. I agree, probably would, because it's a term that gets bandied around a fair bit. Uh, And another question came in actually just a couple of days later was this. Could you provide some references for material related to why you believe Satan is now bound and can no longer deceive the nations? Curious to look further into that idea and clearly there's some uh, reflection behind that. Now um, just a brief note by way of uh, uh, setting some theological and practical context for this. Some of this probably arose from, uh, in fact one of them I know did, a recent series of Bible studies on Wednesday night on eschatology, which we're actually still in the middle of. As I record this on Thursday, June the 15th, we're taking a short break to do some stuff on deacon training, but um, we're coming back to eschatology. And so the binding of Satan is something that arises in connection with Christian eschatology. And so what's the best thing to do? I think what we'll do is we'll begin with that question of the binding of Satan. Uh, Why do I think Satan is now bound? What does it mean that he cannot deceive the nations? And then we'll jump straight on into this idea of spiritual warfare and say a word or two about that. So Why do I believe that Satan is now bound and cannot deceive the nations? The answer is because the Bible tells me so. Revelation 20, I'm going to read a few verses from this, and then I'm going to set them in a broader biblical context just to give you a sense of where they're coming from. But Revelation 20 reads as follows. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, um, the dragon picking up some, from some of the imagery earlier in Revelation, um, Revelation uh, chapter 12 in particular, and the ancient serpent, obviously Genesis 3, and, th- and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So what's going on here? Well, remember, Revelation is vision, not video. This is a vision that John the Apostle is seeing of what is uh, about to happen or is now happening in the first century when he looks uh, through this door that's opened up to him into heaven. And what he sees back then in the first century is an angel um, binding that great evil angel, Satan, for a thousand years. This is the only reference uh, in in as many words to the the thousand years of the so-called millennium. Uh, and sealing Satan in there in this pit for a thousand years so that he can't deceive the nations any longer. Now that thousand year millennium is the theological term that's sometimes given to the very long period of time which began with the resurrection, ascension, enthronement of Jesus and continues to this day, this long period of time during which Satan is bound and can't deceive the nations any longer and it will finally end at his 
second, no, not his second, his final coming in glory to judge the living and the dead, the general resurrection and final judgment and so on. Now, a full explanation of that is, as sometimes you read in books, beyond the scope of this, well, podcast. I'm not going to try and give a full justification for that uh, right now, but suffice it to say that if you wanted to uh, dig into that a little bit more, then you could listen to the, those eschatology Bible studies, which are available actually on this podcast. They're coming out one bit at a time, and they've been on our church website, com. How do I summarize this? Um, uh, this reflects... Uh, what uh, has come to be known as a post-millennial eschatology, which is an optimistic view of history, wherein the church, as Jesus taught in his parables, and as Paul the Apostle taught, and as the whole of the scriptures actually teach, the church will continue to grow following Christ's resurrection and his victorious ascension into heaven, continue to grow through ups and downs throughout this whole church age, this long period of time, which is figuratively depicted here as a thousand years, all the numbers in Revelation are figurative, obviously. Um, and uh, continue to grow like a rock that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth, like seed that produces a 30, 60, 100-fold harvest, like a, a, the smallest of all seeds that grows to become a great tree, the mustard seed becomes a great tree, and all the birds of the air make its nest, their nest in its branches. In other words, starts small, grows spectacularly big, and starts to permeate and affect the whole of human society before Christ returns in glory at the end of that period of time. So Christ's return is after, that is post, this long period of the church's victory, the millennium, hence post-millennium or post-millennial eschatology. Now, it's connected obviously with the binding of Satan because one of the reasons why the gospel grows in this way is because Satan has already been defeated. Satan was defeated at the cross and resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Jesus um, you might express that with a, another level of granularity and detail and talk about the, the, the overthrow of Old Covenant Israel 40 years later, which had become, in effect, satanic because of their apostasy against Jesus, when, um, against the Lord and their refusal to accept Jesus when he came in the flesh. So, but but to, to simplify a little bit, um, the, the conquest of Satan basically takes place at the cross and resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Jesus. And I'm going to give you some biblical background to this in a second. And so that begins this period of time during which Satan can't deceive the nations any longer, which is how come the church can grow and conquer the nations. And that's exactly what you expect, because if you think about what Jesus said in, his, uh, in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, uh, he said, let me just dig it up and I can read it for you, um, rather than risk risking misquoting it, though I should know it by heart. Um, uh, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said. Go therefore and literally disciple the nations. The, the phrase the nations or all the nations, it, literally it says all the nations, make disciples of all the nations. Um, uh, the, the term the nations or all the nations is the object of the verb to disciple. So it's not the idea that you go and disciple some people from within the nations or some people from the nations or take some people out of the nations and disciple them. It's that you disciple the nations as nations. Political and social entities are to be discipled and the people within them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the people in them are to be baptized and taught everything that the Lord has commanded the apostles. Right, so... Uh, you've got this picture then of uh, the shape of the period of history in which we're now living uh, as, a, uh, as a, an era of growth and conquest because Satan does not 
now have the influence over the nations of the world that he once had. Now, we're going to come back to that in a second, because, um, or in a few minutes rather, because that doesn't mean that Satan has no influence at all, hence the idea of spiritual warfare, which we'll talk about in a few minutes' time. Um, but the growth of the gospel is connected with the fact that Satan cannot any longer deceive the nations as once he did. So how did he once deceive the nations? Well, it's interesting just to try and tell the story of this by thinking of the uh, the history of Satan's interaction with people from shortly after the creation of the world up to the coming of Christ and beyond. So just think about human history from Satan's perspective. Uh, at the fall, when he successfully tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God, uh, he was told by the living God in Genesis 3, 15, that he would be cursed above all the livestock, and the, the, or the serpent in, in whose form Satan had appeared would be cursed. And then verse 15, the Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and you, you, your offspring and her offspring, pardon me, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the Lord here announced that there will be this age-long conflict or ages-long conflict between Satan and his offspring and the woman and her offspring. One of the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would only succeed in crushing or bruising the heel of the offspring. So what's Satan now thinking? From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 onwards, he's on the lookout for the woman's offspring. And he, he knows that some of the offspring of the woman, maybe one individual, it's in the singular here, but offspring is uh, both singular, it can be either singular or plural in um, Hebrew, just as it can in English, it's the word seed in Hebrew. So it could have the sense of singular, and Paul makes a big deal of that in Galatians, but it could also be a singular noun denoting a plural entity, and we think of that in terms of like seed. We, we do the same with the word sheep, and uh, other some nouns in English have that, that sense. Satan knows that one of the offspring of the woman is going to be the one who conquers him somehow. He probably doesn't know how at this stage. So what's he going to do? Well, he's going to in effect, wage war against the offspring of the woman because he's going to be told there's going to be enmity between him and them. And so what's going to happen? The first child to be born of Adam and Eve, his name was Cain, well, Satan's going to get to work on him, as indeed he does, so that when the second child is born, he manages to make a murderer of the first child and his victim is his brother Abel. It's going pretty well for the devil so far, isn't it? He's managed to wipe out one of the seed of the woman, Abel, by tempting the other seed of the woman, Cain, to sin in a way that's, well, it's different from, but it's the same kind of character of rebellion and sinfulness that was exemplified by Adam and Eve. So this gives us a clue as to what Satan's going to do to try to make sure that he doesn't lose this battle that has been announced. If he can persuade the offspring of Adam and Eve to keep being sinful like Adam and Eve were, then the victory is assured. What he wants to do is to encourage people to sin, tempt people to sin. When they do sin, accuse them of being sinful so that they, uh, in effect, are unable to stand against him 
as a righteous seed, capital S seed, you can see where we're going with this, might be able to do so. Now, it's intriguing because Satan is mostly behind the scenes for almost all of the Old Testament. But when he does pop up, this is the kind of thing he's interested in doing. Just let me uh, call to your mind a couple of famous examples, one particularly famous in Job chapter 1, where we're introduced in Job chapter 1 verse 1, there's a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now we obviously look at that and start thinking about the character of Job, and it's kind of interesting and it raises all kinds of questions throughout this book about uh, the, the reasons for evil and how to think about God's sovereignty over evil and so on and so forth. But think about it for a second from Satan's perspective. Here's this man who's blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. So what's Satan thinking? Well, one of the things he's going to be thinking is, I need to watch out for this guy because maybe this is the kind of man who could be the chosen conqueror, a righteous and blameless man, who fears God and turns away from evil. So no surprise then that uh, Satan seeks to persuade God to provoke Job to sin. And you remember what um, he says um, uh, in initially, um, Satan, well, the Lord says, look at, look at this blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil, verse 8, and then jo Satan answers the Lord and says, well, does he fear God for no reason? Obviously, he's a, he's a righteous man because you've protected him. But if you take away all that he has, then he'll curse you to his face. And of course, so the Lord gives Satan permission to do that, and he doesn't curse him to his face. And, and then um, again, in, in the next chapter, um, uh, Satan says, yeah, well, okay, you've made it easy on him. You've taken away all his stuff and uh, many of his uh, family and so on and so forth, but you've not touched him. If you strike him, then he will curse you to his face. And of course, um, Satan, then, uh, the Lord allows Satan to um, bring about, or maybe we're better off saying that the Lord brings about these uh, illnesses and boils and all these kinds of things. And there's Job sitting in the dust and scraping his postulant oozy sores with a piece of broken pottery. And his wife even says, look, you'd be better off cursing God and dying. What a way, this is no way to live. And it's almost as though she is channeling the temptation of Satan to rebel against God and sin. And uh, the uh, climax of that little portion of the narrative, chapter 2, verse 10, he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? And in all this, say, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So you notice Satan is trying to get Job to be sinful and rebellious against God. And Job is refusing to do so, even through this torment. And the torment then continues through, you know, 30-something long chapters until you get to the end. Now, just a brief side note, we're not here to think of Job as sinlessly perfect. I don't think that's what's going on, obviously. But nonetheless, he's sufficiently righteous that Satan is concerned about him. He's trying to persuade him to sin, because if he can get this man to be rebellious, then he'll know he's not the chosen one who's going to conquer me. You have something somewhat similar in um, the book of Zechariah. It's a fascinating prophecy. Let's dig it up for you. When Satan makes another appearance, oh, and Haggai, not Zechariah, Zechariah's the next book, here it is. When in Zechariah chapter 3, you've got a vision of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. And you see what Satan is doing here. Rather than 
trying to uh, cause Joshua the high priest to be to act sinfully. He's simply trying to bring to God's attention the fact that he's already done so. Because again, he's all about trying to make people sinful and trying to get God to acknowledge people are sinful. If, if he can make the Lord recognize as sinners every single person who lives, it's very hard for any of those people successfully to overthrow the devil, right? Because he's managed to cast them all into the same bucket that Adam and Eve were in. And of course, that vision, wonderful vision of Joshua, the high priest, in which uh, the, the priest is clothed with filthy garments. And in this vision, the Lord commands that those garments be removed and replaced with clean garments, representing the fact that the Lord will purify Israel's representative priest. There we are. So that's um, in Zechariah chapter three. So you see the picture emerging throughout the Old Testament scriptures. What Satan really, really wants to do is to persuade the uh, people of God and people generally to be wicked and to cause God to acknowledge that they are so. Because once that's happened, he knows that, well, this guy isn't going to be the one who's going to crush my head. And so then one day he rocks up, you know, in the first century, and there's this Jesus character who perhaps has called, uh, has attracted Satan's attention because of the unusual character of his birth. Satan's not a fool, at least uh, not a fool in the sense of being entirely ignorant of what's going on in the world. The unusual character of uh, Satan, of Jesus' birth, might have attracted Satan's attention. And so no surprise that uh, after he reaches you know, 30 or so years old, uh, Jesus is led into the spirit, uh, into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry. And the tempter comes and says to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus refuses to acknowledge and obey this, the devil's temptation there and quotes scripture back at him. You've got um, the second temptation in Matthew, which is throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Again, another scriptural answer. And then uh, took him up to a very high place, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. I'll give you all these, says Satan, if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, not in your life, I'm not doing that. You should worship the Lord your God only, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. Now, what has the devil just concluded? He's already witnessed the unusual character of Jesus' birth, Mary, virgin birth, and then perhaps he's witnessed the arrival of the Magi and some of the other strange things. Maybe he's been reading the prophecy of Daniel and the prophecy of Isaiah really carefully. And he's expecting something to happen around about this time in Jerusalem. But having seen this, he's tried to tempt him three times to his face and he's failed to do so. He's now seen that this man looks more like the Messiah than anybody else I've ever seen. So what's he going to do immediately? What he's going to do is go straight back into the place where Jesus is ministering and start trying to take physical possession of all the people whom Jesus is being confronted with. And it's just fascinating if you look through the Gospels, the number of people who are possessed by demons. I don't know whether you've ever thought of that. Do you think this was something just kind of normal in first century Palestine? Of course, many commentators attempted to say, well, they were very primitive back then and they, they regarded things that we now regard as illnesses as demon possession and I've said this before I'll say it again they didn't have cars but they had brains Luke was a doctor 
They distinguish very clearly between things that are illness and uh, having um, some kind of fit or seizure and things which seem demonic in origin. I don't know how they would have distinguished exactly, but they're clearly not foolish and gullible in the kind of way that some modern commentators suggest they are. But suddenly, out of nowhere, you've got people possessed by demons when apparently this isn't very usual, at least according to scripture, it hardly ever happens. It only happens when Jesus arrives on the scene. Why would that be? And the answer is, of course, because the devil now knows who he is because he's failed to tempt him. And so he's going to focus all his attention on frustrating Jesus' ministry in the only way he knows how. So now, from this perspective, from the perspective of the devil, the Gospels can be read as Jesus' uh, conquest or or, or uh, the growing conflict between uh, Satan and this Messiah Jesus, whom the Lord has prophesied in Genesis 3 will overthrow him. And as you get to the end of the, end of the gospel, it looks like, um, from the devil's perspective, Jesus is walking straight into the devil's trap. He's persuaded him to go all the way to Jerusalem, where his disciples are fearful that he's going to be killed. Now, why would you go there? You know that everyone hates you there, or that the Jewish leaders are uh, threatening to kill you. They've been plotting to cause you harm and to kill you since very near the beginning of your ministry. But Jesus seems resolutely determined. Uh, Jesus refuses to defend himself in any substantive way at his trial, and eventually he's crucified. And the devil must have thought he'd won precisely at that moment. He must have thought he'd won because, well, how can this guy overcome me when he's dead? Unless, of course, and this is the wonderful irony of the gospel, that it's precisely by his death that Jesus overcomes death. It's precisely by being labelled unjustly as a sinner that our, that, that Jesus, sorry, uh, atones for our actual sins. Uh, this is reflected in lots of different ways in uh, the New Testament. Just think of Colossians uh, chapter 1, um, sorry, Colossians chapter 2, reflecting on the, the cross of Christ. I'll just read a couple of verses um, from verse 13. Uh, you who were dead in the, your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See what he's saying? There's this record of debt in the form of legal demands which we've failed to meet. It's analogous almost to Zechariah 3, isn't it? It's all these things that we've done which stand against us, but that record of debt is placed against Jesus. And the image here is that it actually becomes the charge sheet that's nailed above the head of the crucified criminal. It's as though, instead of saying the king of the Jews, which is what it actually said, um, Paul is imagining that that record of debt consisted of all the things that we've done, all the, the sins that we've committed, which are, so to speak, uh, uh, taken by Christ upon himself. And for those, he is crucified. And then it's just fascinating what Paul goes on to say then in verse 15. Thus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, those evil powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in it, in the cross, that is. So the triumph of Jesus over Satan and the powers of evil consists precisely in him suffering the punishment that was due to us for the sins that we've committed, which means that Satan 
can no longer accuse us of the wrongdoing that we're actually in our own lives guilty of. It's an exact kind of replica of Zechariah 3. So at the cross, Christ is the victor. He's crowned with thorns. Uh, Karl Barth, in one of his um, more... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to be rude about Karl Barth. He has, he has some slightly flaky moments, but he has some wonderful moments. Um, I can't remember where he wrote this. Somewhere in his church dogmatics, he says that Christ chose as his throne the malefactor's tree, meaning the cross. Christ chose to be enthroned on the cross of Calvary. And then the resurrection of Christ is the vindication and the, the declaration that he's righteous, Romans 4.25, and his ascension and enthronement is the enthronement and ascension of Jesus as the righteous king over the now humiliated and shamed and defeated devil who no longer has any grounds to accuse us and no longer therefore has any chance of victory over those nations which Jesus has charged his disciples to disciple. So that's why in Revelation 20, it can be said that for this period of time, Satan is in effect bound. I mean, I don't think we're supposed to picture a, a physical cage or a physical pit, although you can if you like, if it helps you. Um, but it means that Satan's not able to, um, as once he did, uh, take that sort of dominion over the thoughts and consciences of people by accusing them of all the sins that they've done. Because for those who are in Christ, um, those sins are covered. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that he can't deceive anybody or any individual person. Of course, it's possible for individual people to be deceived by Satan. And, and it's certainly the case that those who are outside of Christ don't have the benefit of the merits of Christ's death, so to speak, applied to them. But for those who are in Christ, well, he can't tear them away from him. He can't take possession of those who belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you can't belong to somebody else. Um, just a little note, sometimes there's um, a question that arises because of the end of Revelation 20, verse 3. After that, he must be released for a little while, and that seems to be a reference to verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And there's sometimes people imagine then a, 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 a final great rebellion where masses and masses of people rise up against the church at the end of this age that we're now living in before the resurrection of Christ. And so Christ returns actually not to um, a victorious scene, but to a, a, a wasteland of, of people who've been rebellious against him. Well, you just got to read this a bit more carefully because this is a rebellion, yes, but a failed rebellion. Look, verse 9. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Uh-oh. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, um, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Right, so this is a failed rebellion. Uh, don't please imagine the end of this age of history being one in which, you know, it looks like the church is growing, it looks like everything's going really well, oh, and then everything goes terribly badly wrong. There will be, at that point, an attempted but failed final uprising which will be thrown down in this kind of way. Again, let me remind you, vision, not video. Don't please imagine literal armies marching. Imagine, I don't know what you're supposed to imagine, but um, some kind of 
a way in which um, some people may be tempted to uh, rise up against Christ and the gospel and the church in some way, but fail to do so. Now, in that context, we get to the uh, the second question um, about the idea of spiritual warfare. And the best place to think about this from, just briefly, I'll say a word or two about this. And I'm sure this is the passage that the question was thinking of, of course, is revel is Revelation. Here's, I go again. Ephesians 6, the, the famous armour of God passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, Colossians language, remember, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand or stand in the evil day and having done them to stand firm. Right. So this is a fairly dramatic and colourful set of images about warfare, spiritual warfare, warfare that is against not flesh and blood, but these rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness, spiritual forces of evil and so on. Right. So what are we supposed to think this is like? What is this spiritual warfare? Okay, well, just pause for a second. Think what we've already discovered. First thing, remember, that this was written and we are living after the actual overthrow of Satan, who cannot now deceive the nations any longer, though he can deceive individual people. There are many people who still live in darkness because they don't know Christ. Therefore, secondly, in what does this warfare, quote-unquote, consist? The answer is living out the convictions of the gospel in such a way that we are being faithful to Christ and we are calling others to do so. Let me say that again. It's living out the convictions of the gospel in such a way that we are being faithful to Christ and we're calling others also to do so. Just look what it says. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one, the helmet of salvation and the sword of spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And then there's a little bit, please pray for me as well. Now, rec recognize here that you've got this complex and textured metaphorical uh, vehicle, if you like, of the, um, uh, the, the imagery of armour, which obviously draws on lots and lots of other biblical symbolism, like the priestly breastplate and um, the shoes for your feet, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news and so on and so forth. But if we may just short circuit for a moment to some of the conceptual ideas that are behind this, these are simply, at one level, the convictions of faithfulness to the gospel of Christ. Truth, righteousness, readiness that comes from the gospel, so readiness, I think, to speak the gospel as well as to live it out. Faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. I mean, those are just different elements of and different angles on what it means to be a faithful Christian, correct? That's just what you do. And what you're doing, strictly speaking, is not trying to defeat Satan. He's already been defeated. This is mopping up operations, perhaps. And it's also proclaiming.
proclaiming his victory to people who are still living in darkness and still under one who is actually a defeated foe. And so spiritual warfare ought to be understood in that way. Please abandon the lurid websites and comic books and graphic novels and um, uh, left-behind um, fiction and read what the Bible says. And yeah, you've heard me say that before. And you notice that, um, yes, it's warfare in the sense that it's a battle daily uh, to live in this way. We should expect opposition. We should expect opposition in the, re the real gritty practicalities of faithfulness and truthfulness, the courage to be ready to speak about Christ when we have the opportunity to do so, trusting Christ in all circumstances. It says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, um, the helmet of salvation, trusting in uh, the salvation that Christ has won for us, uh, prayer, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, there are, there's a great temptation to uh, imagine these in an almost fictive sort of way, whereas in fact they are heavily metaphorical ways of uh, encapsulating that which the whole of Scripture speaks about, and particularly the letters of Paul, the, the fundamental convictions which should drive our lives as Christians. And that's what spiritual warfare is, and it's in that way we declare Christ's victory over the powers of darkness and call people to him to find refuge in him. Okay, so those are a couple of questions that, well, I enjoy thinking about them, and I hope they've been helpful for you. Uh, as ever, if you've got any questions, send them my way. I'd be very happy to try and include them on a future podcast. But for now, God bless, and see you next time.